0: Design Matters is on summer break and will return with new interviews this fall. In the meantime, we're replaying some archival episodes. This one with Thomas Kale is from October 2017. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with the director of Hamilton, Thomas Kail, about his career and about the joys of collaboration.
1: I learned not only how much bigger the world was than my little group of friends, but that there were people that were going to make things that I would never be able to make,
0: and I welcomed that. Here's Debbie Millman.
2: You could say that directing a musical is a form of design, and the materials are music, lyrics, and human performers. Thomas Kail has directed some of the most memorable musical theater experiences of our time, including In the Heights and Hamilton. His collaborations with Lin-Manuel Miranda are now the stuff of legend, as are the shows he's created on his own. He joins me to talk about his extraordinary life and career. Thomas Kell. welcome to Design Matters.
1: Please never stop talking. That was as good as it's going to get for me. (laughs) I'm very, very happy to be here.
2: Oh, thank you. Tommy, is it true that when you were growing up in Northern Virginia, Here we go. The first song you ever memorized was Slick Rick's rap, Mona Lisa. Absolutely. Okay, prove it to me.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's not going to be that kind of pod. But let's just say it's it's in a very special place in my brain that does not go away, which is what I was always fascinated by with lyrics. Where do they go? Somehow they get lodged in. And I remember someone giving me that tape. And then it was put into my brain. And it's still there. And that song can come on. And it it just emerges. I don't know where it's been for six months or two years. And That song was really important to me. And and those bus rides into Lyle's Crouch Elementary School (laughs) were very important. Well, I know
2: that your bus driver's musical taste had a lot of impact on you. What kind of music was he playing? Everything,
1: you know. And, and, you know, you're so informed. I'm in the middle of Two Sisters, which basically defines everything about me. So you'll find that out very quickly. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And so
1: the people that you ride with until you are able to drive often dictate a lot of the music and a lot of the input that you're going to have. Where the conversation's going what what we're gonna be talking about is defined just like it is, let me change the radio station. Like I wasn't allowed to touch the radio on the bus, so whatever he was listening to is what we all were listening to. And that's a sort of, that becomes like a, a stand-in for an older sibling. So then when I started driving into school, when I was still a passenger with my older sister, it was whatever she wanted i mean there was there was no say or my dad did that's where i fell you know in love with the 60s and that's where i fell in love with the beatles and I had an understanding of what that was so i was i was very much shaped by those earlier car rides i think most good things in my life probably happened during a car ride
2: i read that the clarity and the precision of the storytelling and the economy of the words and language of slickrick's mona lisa really opened your mind up and i wanted to know how In what way
1: well the storytelling it's like poetry. I mean, th- th- there's so much that's compressed. And so I was fascinated by that. And also in that song, Slick Rick plays different characters. That was new to me, that that a song could be a, a sketch or a small play. And I think that was, that was really striking. You know, when he did the, the voice of the other person, it was like, oh, there's a conversation happening. It's not just coming from one place. And so that was, that was instructive. And I filed it away until it <laughs> eventually came out in my 20s. And I was like, oh, maybe I should do this for a living. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Now, you're the son of a lawyer. Yes. And an archivist. Yes. How has that influenced you?
1: Well, my mom is an archivist, and my, my initial studies were really, it probably informed both my, my dad is also a history major. So I went to a very liberal artsy school. I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't start doing theater until I was 21. I found that the exploration of things that had come before were interesting to me. And the notion of historiography, although I didn't know that's what it was called, was also interesting. So, you know, who tells your story was something I was thinking about well before Lynn wrote it in a very crystalline way, um, you know, in the show. But I think, you know, my my mom also had a real attention to detail, which I certainly absorbed. And I remember being a kid when she went back to grad school, quizzing her on her art history. And so I I watched her rigor. I watched how she worked. And... The importance of knowing where things came from and where they fit into something, into some sort of ecosystem, even if it was a, a painting. You know, I, I think somehow probably was absorbed.
2: I read that you had a very Washington childhood. Your next door neighbor in Alexandria was Paul Sogis, this yes, two Senate, houses down. Yeah, the senator and presidential candidate from Massachusetts. Did you ever think about going into politics?
1: No. And then I started working on Hamilton and realized that I was in politics. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I you know people from D.C. I find. Uh, either run right towards it or they run away from it. I ran away from it and then...
2: Came back to it. Sort of like Oedipus, right? (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Um, uh,
1: But, you know, it's interesting because I I was obsessed with the West Wing. Not the the physical place, the the show by Aaron Sorkin. And Lynn and I had a real uh, sort of bonding period early in our relationship about that. And, you know, I sort of fashioned myself probably in some indirect or implicit way after the John Spencer character, who's the chief of staff in that. And so growing up around politics where someone who was a politician with Mr. Songus was my mom and dad's friend. So he was a guy. So the one thing that probably landed it somewhere, even when I started working on Hamilton is this was about people. They Mm -hmm. might seem exalted, but this was someone who had three kids. And I remember when this happened in the sandbox, or we fell down over there, or we got home late. And then, then they're just parents and people. And so I think there was something very leveling about that for me.
2: You've described growing up in the kind of neighborhood where you rode your bike to the park and the local creek and grew up playing soccer and baseball and tennis. And I read that you initially thought... It makes of becoming... me sound
1: super waspy. <laughs> so it's like the Jewish version of that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I read that you initially thought of becoming a sportscaster. Why, uh, did, why did you decide against that?
1: If only... Um, I like the idea of sports as community building. I like the idea of sports as something that could gather people and that it wasn't about, um, wasn't about anything but that moment. What I, what I miss about playing sports, and I was, I was good at sports until I was 12, and then I was average at sports, and then uh, people started to, what's the word, grow, and I, <laughs> I stopped being able to compete. Um, but when you're playing soccer, the world gets very simple. Can you string five passes together? Can you get this ball with your teammates over that line when you're playing baseball? Can I put the wood on the ball? Yeah, it's very Can't, objective. And it's and I love that. And I, I I liked the simplicity of that. And that's something that I am seeking in my life as things sometimes spin out. like What are those things I can find that really are as rudimentary and fundamental as, as that kind of action?
2: Um, you talked about how at 13 or 14, your mastery of sports... Was superseded by others, and I think that's a really wonderful way of of framing it. It, it was superseded by others, as opposed to you just sucked.
1: <laughs> because I never, I never just flat out sucked. Um, but I could watch them advance, and I could. And, and there's something very, uh, sort of, shocking about becoming aware of your mortality at that age, because that's really what you're doing. You're you're realizing that there are things you will not be able to do. You're realizing that you're not invincible. And you see other people achieve and accomplish and move and be physical in a way that you can't be. So you just start thinking, oh, right, there's an end to this. There was a time when I could run forever. There was a time when I I couldn't be stopped on a field when I was very young. And then there was a time when I could, and it just ended. And And what I had was the challenge of still being able to see how the game could be played in my head and not being able to execute it. And so that was a real shift for me because I went from being in the middle of the game, in the middle of the field, playing every minute to playing half the game over on the side, to finding myself standing next to the coach because I still had a relationship with the players. So I could be uh, an, an emissary. I could be a, an in, you know, a, a go between. And I just, I watched the role shift, but I started to become really aware that there were things, no matter how hard I worked, that I would not be able to do. And sometimes you give all of your effort and you lose and that's something for, you know, for life, you know, outside the lines and for this business was incredibly instructive. And I, I didn't realize I was learning that how to win, how to win gracefully, how to lose gracefully. And that sometimes it's not your day.
2: Do you still experience moments where you realize that you're not going to be able to do something that you want to do?
1: Yes. But I, I feel like, you know, probably 12 or 13 is when sports started to uh, elude me a little bit in, in, in the way that that I wanted to play or participate. And so I think what happened was I started to see that there was there was another way that my usefulness and my utility was not in what it might have been designed in my brain at 8, but it was this other thing because I could talk to people and I could mobilize them.
2: You started to coach at that point. Yeah, I started
1: right? to kind of coach and coach younger kids and I started to become a camp counselor around 14 or 15 which is basically the best way to train to be a director. How do you take a group of people that have never met, put them in an environment they've never been in, and make sure they understand which direction they're supposed to be heading. That's what being a camp counselor is, and that's what directing is. So I started to learn these things unconsciously with n- with no goal to work towards other than, I was 15 years old and three kids showed up at Camp Greenbrier, West Virginia. One from France, one from West Virginia, and one from you know Southern Maryland. And they'd never met, and they were terrified, and they'd never been away from home. And I was 15 and I was responsible for their lives at this age that would probably be more terrifying than it was then I just thought well then keep them alive and keep them healthy and that's it that's the job and so that was that was a very powerful thing to be grappling with at that age
2: as someone who has spent a lot of time in summer camp and as a counselor it seems to me that one of the things that you in I guess we're required to do was to unify them in some way. How do you go about doing that when you have these disparate people coming together with disparate realities and different ways of operating in the world moving through the world? How do you unify people?
1: Well, I try to find the best way to communicate with them and not rely on another mode of communication until I've established it with one person. And now all that happens in, you know, in fractions of seconds, right? Like the code switching part of directing is what I love about it. So if someone is away from home and they're 2,000 miles away from home and they're an only child, that's information that I need in some way that will be absorbed to trying to find out, okay, but there's a tennis racket. So, hey, pick up your racket. Let's go have a conversation while you're hitting a ball. Go do something you know how to do with me. And then maybe something will open up. Everybody's from somewhere. Everyone's, everyone's very um, knowledgeable about some, some size circle of where they are, even at 12 or 13. And so I just tried to get in that circle a little bit and see if I could in some way identify what it was that they needed at that moment and ask a lot of questions. And then also let them know that I was gonna be there and being quiet was okay too.
2: Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by code switching.
1: Well, you know, I I directed this play about Vince Lombardi and that was a real thrill for me because I, I, had a chance to really kind of investigate a different kind of leadership. And Lombardi and I have very little in common, although I've said often that coaching and directing have a lot a lot to do with each other. But Lombardi was someone who would talk very constantly about the fact that there were 55 people on the team and you had to know who you would kick in the butt, who do you put your arm around, who do you ask about their kid, who do you only talk about the work. And so when I go to my shows, especially if a show has been up and running, A lot of my job is what happens when I knock on your door at 7.30, not about what happens from 8 to 10.30 when the curtain goes up. And there's some people at at Hamilton right now, the shows, you know, we're coming up on two years on Broadway. There's some people I haven't given a note to in months. And there's some people that still want to talk about a scene. There's some people who only talk about their family or this thing that we once did together. And, like, that's enough to say, I'm here. And if you want to continue the conversation about the work, I'm available for that too. I mean, so much of it is just acknowledging whatever the moment requires is going to be different from person to person and understand that you need to talk to the group many times in one collected arena. And then most of your relationship is one-on-one and directing happens all the time. Directing happens because you happen to take the subway with someone and all of a sudden you have 20 more minutes. And it's hard to find 20 minutes in rehearsal with somebody. So it happens, it happens in hallways, it happens in subways, it happens outside, it happens, you know, well outside the confines of rehearsal. And most of it is about creating uh, available space for someone to be excellent in.
2: In addition to sports, you are also consumed by music, as we've discussed. In fact, that you said that sports and music are the two things that transcend time and space. In what way?
1: Well, if you talk about Slick Rick, I'm back on the bus. If you mention this game that I played, I can tell you about that date in 1991 in in June when I sat there and watched a baseball game. And so that doesn't happen with a lot. You know, there's there's very there's there's very few things food can do that. Food kind of cuts through in that way. And I think that you know, I was fascinated when I was working on Lombardi and then this other sports play about Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. You know, the people that save their programs, the same thing as saving your ticket. the same thing as holding on to a ticket stub or something that happened at the game. My mom grew up in Pittsburgh. And she was, a, she was a sports fan in the way that if you grew up in Pittsburgh, you had to be a sports fan. But when she showed me that she still had the ticket stub from the first night game in that World Series, that was about being there with her father. I like think she knows who won the game. But she went and her father took her to that game. And I thought, if someone comes to my show, they've made a decision. With all the things to do in the world, they're going to come and see the show that I worked on. They're going to spend their money. They're going to travel. They're going to come and sit with us. That's the memory. That's the... That's actually what goes home with them. They'll remember two or three things from the show. And really what they'll remember is I went with my aunt. What they'll remember is I took my little sister and we were there together. So going to a concert, I think, has that uh, as well. And yeah,
2: everybody remembers their first concert. Oh, yeah. Right? They don't remember their ten.
1: What was your first concert?
2: Um, Olivia Newton-John.
1: Oh, this just got pretty good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> my father took me. Yeah. Um, this was in the early 70s. And he took me to see her. He got tickets at Saratoga Raceway. She was still a country music singer at that point. And she was singing, um, the big hit was If You Love Me, Let Me Know. And then we drove back after the concert and the fan belt in his car broke. And we got caught on the side of the road for hours waiting for a tow truck to come get us. But it was one of the best days of my life. Um, I got one of those pennies that you sort of squish with the date. And I still have it, and
1: that's it. And when you yeah. told me that story, you looked up and you saw it, and you were at the side of the road, and you remembered that song, and you remembered walking in, and you have that, you know, that that thing that you can take with you. And whether you had the penny or you didn't, something else was was yeah. carried deep in there. And but
2: it's so interesting because I can hold that, and it becomes evidence. You know, it's evidence of a life. It's evidence mm-hmm. of an experience, of a time. And and that happened to me actually when I first heard "Helpless." In Hamilton, and it's so interesting because there's that moment where time stops, and that's when I knew that this show was something completely different from anything I'd ever seen before, and I can remember that moment, and every time I listen to this song, I'm back in that moment, and time has stopped, and everything is just silent and perfect and infinite. Well,
1: I think you just said something a hey, very nice, so thank you for that. Um, but so much of this, all of this is saying I was here. Mm. I've made a lot of shows where people are talking about what they left behind. There's some part of me uh, that is constantly thinking about the fact that we're not going to be here. So if we're writing messages in the melting snow to paraphrase Peter Brook or we're scribbling something before the wave comes up and washes it away, art at its purest can say, you are not alone. I am here too, and you are seen. And so whether that's seeing yourself reflected in a moment, whether that's having that experience, that galvanizing moment that happened in that theater, it was just you and that one audience for that one night. It was never that group of people again. They will never be together again but you were together that night.
2: Um, What's interesting is that you've said that you think that music influences our molecular structure. And I've been saying for years that I feel that certain music changes my DNA. And I don't know what it is, how that happens, but it does, it's transformative. Is there something scientific as somebody that's doing this for a living that you can, is it a, a series of notes that changes your DNA? Is it scale? Is it What is it?
1: I don't know enough about music or science or really anything (laughs) to probably speak with any real authenticity about that or authority. But what I do know is when I went to go see a revival of Sunday in the Park with George, and I was not a kid who grew up with cast albums, right? I was listening to Slick Rick. What was
2: the first Broadway show you've seen,
1: you saw? The first Broadway show I saw was Cats. Uh, And, you know, I grew up completely unaware that anybody made shows. I just thought there were these things that happened. But I think what I found was, with the musical form, when I saw that Sondheim revival, there was a moment in the second act when there was a series of notes that were put together in a certain way, and I was watching the show, and it's a show about, you know, many things. Am I here? What does it mean to connect? You know, can I make something where there was nothing? And I was so ready to feel. I was like, it's a show about someone who's making stuff. And I was, I was just a person watching it, um, moved but not uh, necessarily expressing that in some of the ways that you do when you are moved. And I think I was just absorbing and listening and, and I knew the show pretty well. And then it got to that moment and those notes in that order un, uh, unsuspectingly dislodged something. and like I, I let a sound out that was like, like something that had been solid was breaking up. I mean, it was like, and it was, a, it was like a convulsion, like, and I just started weeping, weeping, and somehow, in this show about, look, I made a hat where there never was a hat. There was a series of notes that were put in a certain order that just unzipped me, and so I think words can do that. I think music can do that. I think that being around that—that's the power, in particular, of the musical form. I think that's why the musical form, which I think is. Is the the most demanding of all of the f- skills that I might have is why I keep on running towards it.
2: I want to get back to your origin story a little <laughs> bit. You and your family moved after you finished sixth grade, and you had to transfer to another school and had to make all new friends. You lost all your. You talk about how we you didn't lost. move.
1: I just went to new schools. Oh, so okay, but was, you lost all your friends. You yeah, said. I just started over. It was just a reset.
2: And was that traumatic for you? Well, yeah,
1: and in fact, because I didn't move and they were still there. Oh, you must have felt really left out. So I just, I felt, you know, it was, they were looking at me and saying, why did you leave? And why can you go and I can't?
2: And this was when you went to Sid Wolfram school.
1: Yeah. And I went to school in in DC. So I really was, you know, I was probably eight miles from that school, but it was an hour and it was a world away. And I was, I was a complete outsider again. Um, Yeah. And, you know, seventh grade was when I was really confronted with the fact that, that I, that I was afraid to try. I, you know, I would kind of coasted. Things came pretty easily to me, mostly because my older sister used to teach me whatever she learned when she got home. So when I was in kindergarten she was in, you know, fourth grade, I couldn't go play with my friends until I learned the lessons. It would be me and her Cabbage Patch Kids sitting there, and I just wanted to get outside. And so just by wanting to go and play, I said, sure, sure, I'll learn how to multiply. Like, I didn't know what I was learning, and so I had all this information. I wasn't quite sure what clever to do with Clever
2: older sister. Yes, yeah, very
1: clever older sister. And so what I... What happened was I I was in school a little bit ahead, but it also didn't really give me a great work ethic because everything felt kind of easy. I was like, okay, yeah, I already know that. And then I went to a school where I didn't know everything, and I I stopped trying because if I stopped trying, then I gave myself distance. Well, yeah, but if I had tried. I mean, yeah, but imagine if I would applied myself. So I was not fully conscious. as the slightly more evolved, self-reflexive looking back on it. But I became someone who... Um, just, I was taking a lot of pitches, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't swinging. I was just giving myself an out. I was giving myself space uh, because I was afraid to fail. I was afraid to go to this new place and be the kid who couldn't. Mm. And so I think that was, you know, I was 12 or 13 years old. So all of that was starting to happen.
2: One of your class requirements, as Sidwell, was to take a drama class. And your experience in that class was praised by the school's highly regarded drama teacher, John Elko. What do you think he saw in you at that time?
1: I don't know, but um, thank goodness he did. And he, I mean, he changed my life, you know, period, full stop. And we had this compulsory thing when you got to ninth grade, we had to take two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. And from that, he said, hey, why don't you come take this class called No Acting, Please? And in my <laughs> my lack of intellectual rigor, I thought, oh, no acting, please. I probably don't have to memorize anything. And then you don't have
2: to try that hard.
1: Yeah, because I, I can improv, like I can talk. Um, and... I walked into a room where all the things I thought a classroom should be, desks and you sit here and you hand in a paper, destroyed. All right, right, guys, first class, get on the floor, lie on your back and start making sounds. Start making sounds. So my self-consciousness had to be uh, confronted. Close your eyes. Make a sound. And John was just someone who he probably to this day, it's weird calling him John, Mr. Elko. I'll call him John. Every question was answered with the question. And I just thought, oh, he keeps on coming back to me. And I found that eye-opening. I just, I didn't know that you could do that. I thought it was, you ask a question, you have an answer. And then I started exploring this thing, this making theater, where there was no answer. There was, there was a, there was a way to do it. And then there was another way to do it. And great, you did it that way. Can you do it again? And so the... The sports reptilian part of my brain understood that because practice and rehearsal were the same thing. And so John was someone who clearly could see through a lot of those layers of defenses and not just in me and a lot of people that went to that school, hey, maybe there's something else there. Maybe it's not just, you know, just go left, you know, maybe you can go right and peek over that wall. And that's what I, that's what I did because of him. He boosted me up.
2: Does he know the influence he had on you?
1: He does because I, I got to a point in my life when I thought you should start telling the people about the impact they had on you. So yes, I, I hope that he knows because I, I try to tell him frequently.
2: And at that point, you had no interest in theater. I read that you didn't even watch your first Tony Awards on television until you were 24. Um, I
1: didn't know what they were. I mean, it's not even I didn't watch them. Like, I, it was oh, not didn't, a, they
2: weren't even in your purview. They weren't oh, in your reality. No, I mean,
1: not even. <laughs> I, I, no, that no, was not what June was about for me. I was like, oh, The year's over. Can I go to camp? Like, that's what I was thinking about.
2: Yeah. So you graduated from Sidwell Friends School in 1995 and went on to Wesleyan University as an American history major. And I guess that was because that's what your father did.
1: Yeah. I mean, or I guess that's what I can do. And I happened to get into six classes in my first two years. And I was like, well, how many do I need to graduate? So that had a lot to do with it, too.
2: It wasn't until your junior year in an exchange program at Dartmouth when you sat in on a class. Debbie,
1: you go so in. I really... First of all, I can't believe I'm here. And second of all, it really is very funny to me that you would know any of this about me.
2: <laughs> Sorry.
1: Please immediately is discard this creepy? information. <laughs> no, no it's, just, it's, just, it's just funny to me.
2: <laughs> well, anyway... Back to back to the interview. Um, you, we were at Dartmouth. Um, you sat in on a class being taught by Pulitzer Prize winning playwright August Wilson. And I love that you just like popped in. You're
1: just like, I'm just going to pop- sit in. It was even better. He popped into my class. Oh. I mean, God forbid at age 20, I would do something that proactive. I was still in my, you know, <laughs> don't do anything mode. He came to lecture for one hour of a two-hour class. He just happened to be friends with our professor. He happened to be on campus teaching... And they oh happen to God. be doing Joe Turner's How Coming Out. How
2: generous. Gone. How generous. He also was the author, is the author of Fences. Um, so you'd never met a playwright before, and you went up to him after the class to ask him a question. Can you describe the scene for us?
1: <laughs> like, of course, I can describe the scene for you. <laughs> so um, it was the day before my 21st birthday, and I, on a slightly well thought out whim, decided to go to Dartmouth, which no one, I think, has ever done from Wesleyan during this college exchange. And I was doing it because I wanted to immerse myself in different culture. And yet I wanted to stay in college for those eight semesters. So I thought, well, here I am. I don't know anybody. I've completely started over again, but this time by choice. This was putting myself in a position where I was not safe and I was not comfortable. And. I dropped... Quite a
2: quite a shift from yeah. the previous experience at Sidwell.
1: <laughs> yes. And I mean, it was years later, so hopefully something. Well, that had, doesn't
2: always mean that just because you're older doesn't mean you've become more evolved. Wait like... a minute. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no, not What's in my happen? family. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> let's flip back to that concert. <laughs> um, so I was standing outside this classroom. It was just starting to snow. It was the day before a pretty significant birthday, you know, the day before my 21st birthday. I was pretty alone there. I didn't know a lot of people. And I had a question and I I didn't want to ask it in front of the class because I was too nervous. My heart was beating and he was standing, smoking a cigarette in the doorway as the snow started to fall. And I said, Mr. Wilson, there's an outhouse that's referenced in the play in Joe Turner. Does it symbolize? And then I had the most collegiate, you know, possible thing to say about it. And he looked at me and he said it could, but sometimes an outhouse is just an outhouse. And he exhaled and he walked away to the left and framed by the snow and the, the, the bare trees of Hanover, New Hampshire. And I thought, I have to be a playwright. And I went back to my dorm room and I flipped open my computer and I started typing. Not writing, but typing, as Kerouac would say. And six hours later, I looked up and I hadn't felt the disappearance of time in a very long while. And I had a chance to tell him that story A few years later, uh, just, I waited in line to, you know, he was signing books at uh, uh, the Lincoln Center, Barnes and Noble. And he looked at me and I told him that whole story. And he said, I did that? He said, well, all right. And I said, you don't need to sign my book. I just wanted to tell you. And that was one of the first people that I ever was able to say, hey, I'm going for it. And it's because of you.
2: The title of the play was (laughs) Re-Peter. And the experience really initiated you at that point into the world of theater. You you committed. Tell tell us about what Repeater was about.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the seventy three people that saw it are still talking about it. Um, you know, so
2: I've interviewed a few of them. Here's what they have to say.
1: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> um, so you know, uh, in those early days, nineteen ninety eight of email, you know, we were starting to use subject headings, and so this was uh, a play which was basically a bad version of Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing. I just hadn't read that play. So it was a play that repeated. I know, people. I know. Um, And what you thought was a play was, of course, a rehearsal. And what you thought was in the rehearsal of the play was neither of those things. So it was a a little triptych. And I said, I'm going to take this back to Wesleyan, and I'm going to find my little group. I just started doing theater right before I went to Dartmouth in the student theater at Wesleyan, which is very – active and fertile and permissive. And they said, great, here's 200 bucks, go to the gym. And we mounted that, and it was the first thing I ever directed. And it it was a a revelation for me because this thing that I imagined in my head, I, I made it. And it was made better by my friends that contributed to it. It was made better by the rehearsal process. And hearing those words said in front of an audience and getting a laugh and watching them listen and, you know, you have three performances. So it's grand opening, the run and grand closing (laughs) was, uh, you know, was something that left an indelible, indelible impression on me. And it's the same thing I feel. It's why I think I can connect to and try to be around writers and let them know that my heart beats too and I'm I'm here for you and I know how exposed you are when I was making my you know my little thing back in that gym it's the same feeling it, there's nothing different about doing it there than doing it now I mean there really is nothing different and so that was that was really uh something that I, I I held as I then went into the world and I thought okay I did that doesn't mean anything other than it happened and I have these relationships and can I do it again
2: When you were about to stage the production of Ree, Peter, you found out you had to share the performance space with a freshman Uh, who had composed a musical called Seven Minutes in Heaven. And you thought, who is this guy who is taking our lights, a freshman in a dorm? He wrote a musical. How cute. Um, Tommy, who was that freshman?
1: Well, the world calls him. Mr. Lin-Manuel Miranda, but I call him Mr. Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, <laughs> it was the freshman Lin who I never met. He was just this like phantom in the shadows. You thought it was
2: an annoyance.
1: It was. I didn't think it was. It was. <laughs> because we had a light plot and we had seven lights and then five of them would disappear to this dorm for this. I mean, first of all, it's a terrible title, The Seven Minutes in Heaven. I, I, I We still talk about it. Um, but there was this precocious freshman who was writing things and they were taking from us and we were seniors. And- you know, I watched Greece. like you, you don't mess with seniors. Um, and so he was just in the way. He was someone who made our job more difficult. And he then spent the next 15 years doing that in my life. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, all that being said, you actually never met during no. the one year you overlapped That's at Wesleyan. I did not meet him. Um, after you graduated, you got a $100 a week job as the assistant stage manager at the American Stage Company in Teaneck, New Jersey. And I read that you lived in a windowless basement apartment nearby, but you couldn't have been happier.
1: Really, the first three apartments I lived in were.
2: I was. I read that you actually didn't want your mother to see the first three apartments. There you was lived in. no
1: way my mom was going to see those apartments. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I just. Um, I, I came to this late, so I felt I was behind. And when I got that job, through the good graces of a friend of mine who got me an interview for this job that was basically free labor. um, And they gave me $84 a week after taxes. And I drove the van and swept the stage and wrote the program and, uh, you know, was backstage doing run crew and had little walk-on parts. And I just did whatever needed to be done. And that was my grad school. And I, I, I was, I thought, well, this is it.
2: In 2001, you went to work for the amazing Tony Grammy Emmy Award winning performer, Audra McDonald. What did you do for her?
1: Whatever needed to be done. Whatever. Um, you were her assistant, yeah, right? Yeah, I was her I was her personal assistant. And Audra was an incredible boss, you know, because she really just wanted me to get the work done and do my thing. Like, I, I, if I could do eight hours of work in three hours, then great. I, you know, she really, it was almost like having a, a um, you know, not only a window into a world I now started to think about constantly, but if she was in rehearsal for a concert, she'd say, yeah, come hang in the back, you know, just make sure to get the stuff done. And, and she was someone who just, uh, who gave me a glimpse of what was possible, how to act, how to, how to work at the highest level and be decent and kind and thoughtful and forceful and powerful and how, how you have to navigate and negotiate. And, and I sort of learned how to produce on a very small level because if she was doing a gig where she wasn't paid, I was kind of the point person. So I would have to coordinate and navigate and figure out what she needed and make sure that she could do her job. And so I was doing that simultaneously with this, this little company that I had. And, and she was like, yeah, do your thing. And I need you here. And so I did that for three and a half years.
2: So that little company, um, that was when you and some of your Wesleyan friends uh, formed a theater company. Backhouse Productions. Correct. You were introduced to Alan Hubby, the owner of the Drama Bookshop on 40th Street, and Alan was looking for a startup company to produce plays in a 50 seat performance space in his basement, and you signed on for the challenge. What kinds of shows were you putting on at that point?
1: I did four plays that I wrote at the American Theater of Actors on 54th Street, which is sort of like a rite of passage. It's like above a police station, and I think my budget was thirteen hundred dollars, and. I mean, that was the dream. I mean, right? I was on 54th Street Um, and and the drama bookshop is on 40th Street between 7th and 8th. It's still there. It's an absolute cultural institution that for some reason said, hey, go downstairs, paint that room black and just make stuff. And that's sort of how we paid our rent. And Alan's generosity made us feel, this was my friend, John Mailer, Neil Stewart and Anthony It was the four of us. We thought, wow, we have 52 weeks to program. We can't fill all of that. So all of those producing genes of yours have to be cultivated because, okay, Debbie, you wrote something great. Go get two of your friends. I'll set up the chairs for this one. Okay, then John, you write the next one. Neil, you direct it. I'll be in this. So we just had to keep that thing moving and we had to keep it full. And so I I learned not only how much bigger the world was than my little group of friends, but that there were people that were going to make things that I would never be able to make. And I welcomed that. And that was, you know, there's a line in Hamilton, you know, which is taken from, A quote attributed to Burr, if I'd read more Stern and less Voltaire, I would have known the world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. And when Lynn and I both read the book, before we'd really started talking about it, we both circled that. And I think a lot of that was cultivated down in that basement. Like I needed those other people to make those things, otherwise they would not exist. So this binary idea that it's you or it's me was completely exploded back then. It never occurred to me that someone else's success meant I couldn't achieve or there wasn't space for me. I think there's there's a way to create space. And I learned a lot of that in this tiny basement um, in some sort of paradox.
2: Um, You and Lynn met in the spring of 2002, though you had been given the script and score of the musical In the Heights two years before. Now, I read that you were immediately taken by the play, yet you waited for two years to meet
1: he had to graduate.
2: No why? Why you why why you were waiting for him to graduate. I was graduate. waiting for
1: him to graduate. Yeah, so So
2: you kind of were watching him? Were you just waiting for well, him? Well, you to... know,
1: in 2000 like I mean, first of all, talk about when you're not aware of time, you know, That's 22 true. years yeah. old. Yeah. And I thought, yes, yeah, so we'll wait 2 years till he graduates. There's no there's no consciousness that Lynn is living his life for those two years or <laughs> might not want to meet up it's with not us. a
2: football coach <laughs> waiting to get him into no, the no, professional league. No, it
1: was this was not this was not the major leagues. Um, <laughs> and when I went to go visit Lynn with my friends in May of that year, it never occurred to me that he wouldn't say yes. I just thought, well we'll go and we're gonna say we have a little theater on 40th Street with 50 chairs. Why would you not want to go there? And he kinda looked and he was like, All right and I'll talk to you, but, you know, Lynn was, even then, focused and uh, deep thinking and had a real idea of what he wanted to do, which was make theater and tell stories. And we sat in the basement in June and just had a, a conversation that has lasted for, you know,
2: well that was a 5 hour conversation that yeah. became the rest of your life but you're you're not telling us about one really interesting little story that happened before when you first 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 met. Oh, now nice. you went to see his senior senior thesis, which you didn't like nearly as much as in the Heights. And when you met him, you shook his hand and said, enjoy this. You
1: know what? I was a young man. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you you tease each other now, right? You say oh, that all ab- the time. All the to time. Yeah. Enjoy this. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, enjoy this, bro. Uh, yeah.
1: I really, I really <laughs> co-opted that phrase and ruined it for us. Um, yeah. I, I, I was at this, you know, time in my life where I thought, I couldn't lie. Like, my artistic integrity was so important to maintain for myself that I couldn't go and tell him that it was wonderful if it wasn't. I just said, enjoy this. Because, frankly, what more was there to say about Unborrowed Time, his senior thesis? Mm, Yes. Not to be revived soon. No. (laughs) Not by me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now, you said that In the Heights had the ability to capture the music of today, today. That if you go back in history, popular music and theater music were the same thing. And this was, was this the first time that you heard hip hop used to develop a story in this type of theatrical environment?
1: It was probably the first time I'd heard it. That doesn't mean it didn't exist. It's just that, you know, in my myopia, I only had so many things that I was absorbing. Because I first heard this in 2000. So, you know. Yeah, was, I mean, the
2: first hip hop radio station didn't come out until the, 1993.
1: Yeah, so. um, Bob Edo and Stretch Armstrong, um, Wesley and grad. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember being on the subway in in one of those very... Um, unair conditioned New York subway stations. Like there's certain ones like Herald Square when you're like, oh my gosh, come on, somebody. And Lynn had written a song about how hot it was in a subway station. And I was in, a, it was just like he's, ri- like, he's writing about my life. And it sounds like the kind of music that if someone said, hey, here's the new Tribe album or the Fuji's made this or here's De La or, you know, like, then I'd be like, oh, they have a song about this. And this was a guy writing in the context of story, a larger story, a, a musical, a song that felt like it was, it was speaking to me in that way that I think we're always looking for something that feels like it's for us. And here it was, you know, quite literally. And I just thought, I don't know who this kid is, but my friends, John and Neil, who had seen the show, I said, you were right. When does he graduate? Let's go find him in May and I will spill my soda and say enjoy this and try to not ruin it immediately.
2: (laughs) When you finally met at the Drama Bookshops Theater, you sat and talked for this five-hour sort of mega conversation. And and I read that you stated that you felt like you'd been looking for him your whole life and didn't know. What was that like? Were you scared by that in any way? Did it feel so like overwhelmingly powerful that you didn't want to blow it or?
1: I knew that I I couldn't blow it because we were – we were just we were saying the same things we were saying the same lyrics at the same time it was just where have you been that's what it felt like more than anything and i just didn't want to stop talking to him and so uh, you know i feel the same way 15 years later as i did then uh, and that five hours felt like 10 seconds i mean it was it was not real time and space it was just like this ratatouille moment it was like and there i was
2: yeah I in all of my research um, that I did in preparation for our interview today, the the one line that really sort of struck me as the most beautiful line of that that I found that you said was of all the sliding doors that had to slide into place in order for you to be there talking about that. That's how you described that that moment. It,
1: it, I really did say that very well then. Um, I, I, you know it was it was obviously life changing in a way that I couldn't possibly conceive then. But it was a it was a it was both the gaining of knowledge and a reminder that there are people out there that you just haven't met yet.
2: Isn't that amazing? And they
1: can take the top of your head off. Yeah. And I've just been seeking those people. It's why I listen to your podcast. It's why I respect and admire what you're doing and people that are trying to put these stories out. You just go find people and maybe they'll say that one thing, and that goes in your pocket, and you take it with you. And you don't know why it's there, and maybe you just hold on to it, and it never comes out of the pocket. But there are so many people making so many things and the chance to to be in a room trying to solve a problem or figure something out with those people. Do everything else you can so you can get back in that room. And I just wanted to find a, a room to inhabit that we could stare at something and, and see what we could do.
2: Stare at it at the same time. Yeah. What
1: Although when he's, on, when he's on stage, it's very difficult, which is why I need to have him stop being in these shows. Yeah. <laughs>
2: And I read that um, Lynn has said that for every idea that he had, you had 15 and that 50% of what you talked about that day in those five hours made it into the Broadway production of In the Heights.
1: Um, Well, he's never been a numbers guy, but um, I, you know, I had a couple ideas that I'd been sitting on for two years. So that's the other reason I was able to talk for such a long time. (laughs) He hadn't thought about it in two years and I'd only been thinking about it. But, you know, that was also... uh, a good lesson for me to see that if someone is confident in their work in the way that Lynn was that they can be open to receive and so that was a reminder for me to be open to receive for the creative team around me for the designers around me the things that they can see it's like they're wearing glasses that I don't wear and I want them to be able to share that and I want to try to create an environment for them to to access that part of them and and Lynn very early on sort of said hey I'm listening and even if it's not that, let's talk about why, let's talk about why not. And so that just set up this this real uh, fluid kind of interaction with with creative ideas.
2: It took six years of developing in the Heights at tiny venues and production runs at the Eugene O'Neill Center in Connecticut in 2005 and an off-Broadway run in 2007. But the play officially opened on March 9th, 2008 at the Richard Rogers Theater. In the Heights went on to get 13 Tony nominations, more than any other show, including nominations for acting, choreography, score, book, lighting sets, costumes, sound design, orchestrations, and directing. You won four, including the Tony Award for Best Musical and a Grammy Award for Best Musical Show Album. Pretty good for your first show.
1: Well, you know, what was so thrilling about that whole experience is how many of these people that I that I respected and admired were being recognized. And that the whole show, you know, there's a, it's easy to say that it's me. It's easy to say that it's up, It's Lynn. And what Lynn and I both know is you surround yourself with people like Alex Lackmore, our you know, orchestrator and arranger on Hamilton and Bill Sherman, who did that work with him on Heights or Andy Blankenbuehler. And what you're trying to do is, and this kind of goes back to that DC stuff. I think about this a lot. There, there's a way to grow up in that area in that, you know, that sort of metropolitan (laughs) district of Columbia and surround yourself with people that say yes. And then there's a, there's a group of people who surround themselves with folks that have read books they haven't read and have done things they haven't done and have come from places they haven't come from. And that was really, that was it for me. That was the thrill. How can I go and find a lighting designer who has 40 Broadway shows? I don't know that person, my producers do. You know, Jeffrey Seller, Kevin McCollum and Jill Furman can say, meet these four people. How about a costume designer who is on his 17th Broadway show is going to work with me? Like it just, I didn't, I had to get outside of myself and go and find these people who had worked with a hundred other directors. And I was just one of those people. Um, And I just, I remember that night, (laughs) I'll stop quoting uh, Hamilton, um, but when, when we were at the Tony Awards in 2008 and it came down to the last award, which is the award for Best Musical, and that's the one award that actually can make an impact on your life in in a practical way, in an economic way. Because if you win an award, and we were very much a little engine that could, if you win that award, it means maybe your show's gonna run the summer, maybe it's gonna run a little beyond that, it has a chance to recoup, which means you can make a living as a theater artist um, for that period of time. And I remember we won the award, we were all up on stage at Radio City, and then Whoopi Goldberg, who was hosting, said thank you and good night and the cast and the crew starts to go off left, and the audience stands up, and this person asks if there's gonna be chicken at dinner, and this other person saying, where's the car, and is it time to go to the bathroom, or can we change, or my feet are hurting? And I just stood there by myself, and I watched, and I thought, this is one minute after getting to this proverbial mountaintop, and it's already about next season, and it's already about where the party is, so it can't really be about this. It has to be about what it felt like to stand there and be with your company, to be with your cast, because this show is over and they're already talking and handicapping next year. Mm. You know, there's a great quote, and that I'll that I'll butcher a little bit, but it's an important one that I that I think about a lot and I say a lot. And it was Tyne Daly talking.
2: Before, Tyne Daly, right? Oh my
1: god! I mean, can we just get <laughs> yes, Tyne Daly in let's here? Let's
2: just say Tyne Daly a few times.
1: Um, and Tyne Daly was talking uh, about a nomination that she had. This was like the night of the Tony Awards, uh, a few years after that, and she said, "Look." We're all thoroughbreds. We just want to run. You're the ones who put colors on us and make us run against each other. And, wow. and I mean, like in saying that, like on the carpet before like the big dance and, and because I didn't know what the Tony Awards were, I didn't dream about this. Um, what I thought was it's a chance to be recognized as a theater artist and to feel that you might have a chance to do it again. That was real. That's something you can take with you. But in that moment, I was so aware that it had to be about what's next and that doesn't mean you can't feel good about the work you've done, but you have to keep moving. You, you have to keep going. And I remember I, I, I did a play that I started rehearsal for 36 hours later, and I never heard the play out loud. And there was an actor that I just met. And so when you walk into that room, they're looking at you again, and it doesn't matter what happened at right. 11 o'clock on Sunday night. Can you serve this? Can you make us feel like we can do the work? And that was, a really, that was an essential 48 hours for me.
2: Let's talk a little bit about directing. You've said that you've realized that as a director, people are going to look to you to set the tone. How do you actually direct?
1: You're going to do it the way that you do it. And so I've learned that I've I've watched a lot of directors. I've read a lot about directors. I studied a lot of directors. And then I realized, find your own voice, take the thing that's useful from someone else, but you have to rely on instinct in the same way that an actor is going to do their preparation and then go on stage. And if you're seeing the technique, then, you know, that, that's not necessarily the most, um, you know, that's not the most helpful thing for trying to get to the center of the truth. And so when I walk into a room, I, I'm constantly thinking about the fact that the temperature is set by a few people in the room. And I often am one of those people. So I want to keep the temperature low, even when the stakes get high, And what I also want to do is remind the group, as I remind myself, that we're allowed to live in a space of I don't know, which is something that I had to learn. And that, you know, and this is sort of in some way uh, in contrast with this mortality obsession I have. Sometimes you say, let's come back tomorrow. And that's okay, too. So it's a lot of instinct. And it's a lot of like, you know, you're 20, 30,000 hours in. So being a human being is very connected to the kind of director I want to be. So I want to be able to listen. I want to be able to edit and suggest and sit and and other times be up and engage. And so you just have to read the room. It's really about moment to moment reacting. And so there's a large arc. I like to talk to the people that I'm working with. Here's what we're going to try to do today over the next couple of days. Just to let them know roughly where we're going. But... There's no one way to get there. So it's about treating people like adults. I find that that's a big, a big challenge in, in my part of the forest is a lot of the information is held by a few um, and not given to the other. And it's like, you know who does that? Like parents and children. That's not what's happening right now. Um, we've all made a decision to be here. Um, so I just try to create some sort of environment that is um, founded on respect and listening.
2: You've stated that your job as a director is to not have the best idea in the room at any time, but to identify the best idea. How do you identify the best? How can you be sure that something is the best?
1: You rely on your instinct. You rely on that, that hopefully honed gut that you have. And for me, when I don't listen to it, that's when I don't sleep. That's when I find myself in a situation that I probably shouldn't be in. And allow yourself the space and reserve the right to change your mind.
2: You've said that the realization that you don't have to have the best idea, you have to identify the best idea was unburdening. In what way?
1: Well, it just takes a lot of pressure off to not think it's me. They're all looking at me. They're not all looking at me.
2: But you, you I mean, the the thing about leadership is you have to be accountable to the decisions. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. Making decisions has never been challenging. I haven't always made the right decisions, but my, my instinct or my impulse to go in a certain way or to try something. And it's very rare. I'm pretty good at time management. It's pretty rare that the best thing to do isn't usually, I don't know, try that. Like, so what is going to take a couple minutes to figure something out or we'll run the scene or we'll run the act. And like, we're talking about, you know, five and 10 and 20 minutes and 30 minutes. Like we're not building something and then looking back, you know, although you are building a set and you have to do that three months before, but you know, you just, you kind of plug and play. I just, I, I've never, I've never felt that the, the decision to do something even though often it is at a certain point, unchangeable was. And so that, that illusion of possibility even for evolution or mutation, I, I think has given me comfort and solace.
2: One line that I read many, many times in my research and heard you say in in a number of different interviews was humanity over talent every time. Tell me what that means. It
1: means I just don't want to be around negative energy. I don't want my company to have to navigate that. This thing is hard that we're trying to do. And if I can protect the room and if, if it's partly my decision along with the producer and and the writer who's coming in the room, you know, if, if you're an actor in a show, you're going to walk into the first day of rehearsal and I'm going to say, oh, this, this guy's playing your brother. You really love each other. Have fun. <laughs> right? you, know, like, um, you know, you're relying on me. You're relying on me implicitly to try to put you with someone where there is the possibility, at least of finding some sort of relationship and connection. And so I just, I don't want to be around people that are not kind and people that are not thoughtful. I'm just I'm not interested in it at all.
2: I saw an interview with you, and I took this quote down verbatim. I have to I had to keep listening to it over and over again to make sure I you know got it four words at a time. So you said this: Most of the things that I want to feel in my life are somehow connected to feeling useful, to having some utility. One of the hard things about working in the arts is that there is this thing we want to give and there sometimes feels as if there is no place for us to put it and we don't feel useful. That's a scary feeling and it's lonely. How do you manage when you feel that there's no place to put what it is that you have? Or do you ever feel that anymore?
1: I certainly feel that. Um, I feel stunted and I feel confused and I feel anxious and a little nauseous, I I just don't, I don't like it. It's just, it's an uncomfortable physical representation of, of this uncertainty. But I do find that for the most part, one of the things that I, I love about the, the kind of work I can do is I can create opportunity. I can create space for myself. It's hard to direct unless you find a writer and an actor and a designer. So I need to go and find people. I need to go and seek them out. And so that's very present for me. Go and find other people. Because if you have other people, if you have someone else pulling on the other side of the rope, then you're accountable. If I say we have to meet on Friday, then I have to be able to show up and have done my work too. And that's all I mean by usefulness. I don't need to, you know. Yeah, I again. know. I
2: know. I, I really thought about that line so much. And part of why I wanted to get it perfectly the, exactly the way you said it was because I, I feel that when I don't feel useful, when I feel like I'm floundering or wasting time or wasting something i feel there is that palpable loneliness to that feeling that i had never really thought about quite in that way before
1: how do you get out of it
2: i try to make things Mm -hmm. i just try to make things no matter what it is i feel like that i'm the happiest that i could ever possibly be if i'm making something it could be a podcast a lesson plan a painting an illustration whatever it is a dinner i just feel like i have to be moving with my hands
1: yeah I, i i think that you know we both, and, and a lot of us, work in a business where ninety five percent of the people that that do this aren't allowed professionally to do it as much as they want to do it, and so that's a you know that's a real challenge you know because it feels like there's always people that want to make work, um, and how do you find them and, and wrangle them and and I think early on when I had that little theater company it was a chance to say, hey I've got the space come help me fill it up that and I, and I realized that that was also Uh, fulfilling, that was also useful for me to, to empower.
2: I love to be able to do that. There's almost nothing that feels as good as helping somebody do something that they want to do, especially if at some point in your life, you wanted to do it too. Mm. And I I yeah. well, that,
1: that, that is speaking of a generous spirit that you have. So.
2: so um in 2009, you directed the New York City Center's Encore's production of the musical The Whiz, and last year you directed Greece live for Paramount Television, which was screened live on Fox. What was it like to retell these two well told stories? And did you want Olivia Newton John for Greece or what?
1: <laughs> um, well you wanted Olivia Newton John for Greece. Told me all. <laughs> um, I felt like I was I was tapping into something that was very um, important that I haven't had a, a chance to reckon with because I do a lot of new stuff, which is someone came before and someone made this and Jeffrey Holder and the company that made The Wiz and, you know, and Warren Casey and Jim Jacobs who wrote Grease and, you know, and Tom Moore who directed it originally, I'm here because of them. So you're, you feel so connected to those inceptors those people that were there at the beginning and i thought how do i honor and then also try to find my own way in and make this feel alive and make both of these incredibly loved things uh, acknowledge that we know why we're here but we're not trying to reproduce or replicate that's that's something i think about a lot of times with casting too now that there's a few companies of hamilton i don't use the word replace I don't, I don't think that's fair to the actor who was there. I don't think it's fair to the actors coming in. You just find someone else who's going to play the role. There's no real um, ability in, in that sense when you're using that kind of language, as far as I perceive it, to create the space that I want to create. Um, so lookalikes aren't interesting to me. Um, essence is interesting to me. And so I wanted to capture the essence of Greece. I wanted to capture the essence of The Wiz, which was – you know it says in greece greece is a feeling so could i create that feeling they threw a party they invited everybody i wanted to do the same thing
2: when you're casting hamilton or any of the main characters in different parts of the country or different parts of the world is there a possibility of you casting someone that will in essence not rewrite the part but perhaps remake the part in the way that Alan Cumming did with the MC in Cabaret and how different his MC was from Joel Gray's MC. Is there do you think do you ever foresee something like that happening absolutely, where somebody absolutely. just completely sort of changes the way we perceive this character?
1: Yes. And and I think that I think time helps with that because right now we're still so close to the original production. Um and over time there will be someone who comes and does their own version of it. And we'll hopefully inject it in a way that we were able to find something that felt fresh and alive and still honoring when we were, you know, doing Grease or the Wiz. But, yeah, I look forward to that. That's
2: uh, exciting. Yeah, yeah.
1: It's going to be your production. It's
2: going to be amazing. (laughs) Let's talk about the origins of Hamilton. I read that you were recently looking back through one of your G-chats with Lynn where he casually mentioned getting a book on impulse about Alexander Hamilton while he was on vacation, and you responded, "Cool, what are you doing tomorrow?" And <laughs> I guess it wasn't a slam dunk. Like, let's make a let's make a musical out of an Alexander Hamilton bio. Lynn reads a lot of books, you know? <laughs> so. Well, the book was Ron Chernow's exhaustive biography Alexander Hamilton, and he bought it on impulse. Talk about sliding doors, right? I mean, I trust love, me, yeah. Um, So I read that the first notion you had was to make a concept album. It wasn't really a notion. That was
1: Lynn's first idea was to make it a concept album like a Vita or Jesus Christ Superstar and not think about the staging or a a traditional narrative in that way. And I think that was very freeing for him. So I tried to just encourage that.
2: And I read that you both made a list that was 612 things long from what you responded to in the book. How, How did you craft the story from these 612 things? 612
1: might have been rounding up. Um, (laughs) You know, I said to Lynn, I have one chance to read this without you in my head. So I'm going to go and read and you go read and just write down everything that's a a scene or a song or uh, a character or a moment. And I'll do the same and we'll see where the Venn diagrams overlap. And so a lot of the stuff that we wrote in those initial scribblings ended up in the show. And what I wanted to do, because at that time we were just thinking about it as an album, was not build a fence around him. Because if he wanted to write something that happened when Hamilton was at the end of his life, good, go and write that. And, and, and I I knew early on that it couldn't be, and this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. A series of events does not a musical make. So where was Lynn feeling the the juice was? Like, go to the juice, see what's there, and then what do we have afterwards? So that, I think, allowed him to not feel encumbered by a story that you know needed to have these certain things happen in any sort of like Aristotelian structure. She's like, no, go and write. What what moves you?
2: I read, um, no, actually, I watched an interview with you and Lynn where he said that when you heard the second song in Hamilton, you told him that you thought he could be writing a lot faster. At that point, he was writing a song every 16 months. So what were you like, chop, chop, Lynn? Let's, Let's get this going?
1: I, mean, I don't think it was that kind. Um, <laughs> we were at a place called Ars Nova. Lynn had just done my shot, what, what became my shot. And, you know, there were about 100 people that watched it. And we were upstairs uh, eating cheese and, you know, like having a, you know, a, 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 like a soda. And everyone was coming up and slapping Lynn on the back and telling him how great he was. And that's usually a really good time to strike. And I was like, oh, my God, ah. everyone thinks you're amazing. <laughs> um, and I said, so you've got two songs for this this uh, album and you started writing it um, in 2009, and it's 2012, so I'm not great at math, but I feel like you should hurry up. So what if we pick a date six months from now and just write two songs a month and let's just see what happens? And flushed from the success of that night, he was like, I can do that. And I was like, I know you can. He called me the next morning. He was like, hey, I have an idea. What if we do it in January and we can do it here or here? And I was like, oh, if he's thinking about that, then I'll go find a place and he'll and he'll march towards that with purpose because something something unlocked there it, and and you know he spent a year in change writing my shot because he wanted it to be extraordinary because it was Hamilton's introduction so right. you know I was fully aware of the the precision that he was after but I also knew that we had to see what we had
2: now, was this when you all decided to live together? That you believe in proximity, I know. I do, so I do. Um, you lived together for eight days at Vassar, right? Yeah,
1: it was right after that. So we did this concert. So the concert was just in New York, and that's where we maybe had like 10 or 11 songs. It was after that we went up to Vassar to New York stage and film, and we spent eight eight or nine days living together. Alex Lackamore lived with us, and Lynn would skateboard up and down the halls, and we'd be like, great, did you bring your homework in? We need a song for tomorrow. And he's like, okay, I got it, I got it, I got it. Um, and... We were together for twenty hours a day, and that was uh, that was an important part of our uh, of our microwaving. You know, what I mean, like it was like let's just like really get in there and see what happens if we're together.
2: Talk about the process of one last time. I know that Lynn was struggling with it for about eight and a half months, and then you came and and said, "Why don't you do that?" And then forty five well. <laughs> minutes later, it was done. Um, eight and a half months, forty five minutes. Yeah,
1: well, I'll, I'll debunk a little bit, but. Um, it was 44 minutes. No. Um, <laughs> so there was a song called One Last Ride. And that was in that initial 600. One Last Ride? One Last Ride. Okay.
2: We, I, I made a mistake. I no, said no, one no. Last you time. said it
1: exactly right. Oh, okay. It was called One Last Ride when we were downtown at The Public. And I kept on saying to Lynn, there's this moment where he and Washington put on their old uniforms, see if they fit, and they go out guns blazing during this whiskey rebellion. And don't you think we need something like that in act two? At this point, we were thinking about, with, you know, act structure. And then we get a chance to see them really grapple with what it means to get older. The things don't fit and all of that. So he writes the song called One Last Ride. And it's performed 117 times at the public theater. And it plays. There's a Whiskey Rebellion in the middle of it, which was kind of a little bit of a left turn. <laughs> um, and we just ran out of time. We knew we we knew we had another version. We knew, we knew there was something else in there. We just didn't get to it. So months go by. The show runs. We're still talking about it. The show closes in May. We're about to reopen in July of 2015. And while we're in rehearsal, so, you know, end of June 2015, Lynn's struggling with it. He's in the other room. And I pop into the room to go see Lynn. And going back to my, my mom and uh, her job, there was a connection to George Washington. Um, she works at a house called the Tudor Place um, in Georgetown. And at Tudor Place, there was this letter that George Washington had that was found where he talked about vine and fig you know, and this return to the vine and the fig tree. And so I remember talking to my mom about it years ago. And it's just something he said, you know, he would talk about a certain kind of destiny, whether it was mowing the lawn or leading the Continental Congress, but he had these phrases that he would come back to. And so I thought I'd mentioned that to Lynn at some point. And so I said to him, it feels like if this is about going home, you know, Washington just wants to go back to Mount Vernon, you know, which is 15 minutes from where I grew up. And he wants to, end this story of Cincinnatus, who took up, you know, to, to lead the army all those years ago. Washington was was very moved by that story. And Lynn said, well, I don't know what Vine and Fig is. What's that? And I said, oh, yeah, look it up. It's this thing that he would say when he talked about going home. And Lynn sort of sat up in his chair and cocked his head. And I said, I'm going to go in the other room. And he came in within the hour. And he said, I got it. And he said, get Chris Jackson. I'm going to have this by the end of the day. And he did. But... And as you know from someone who makes things, it was the six months. It was the two years of all that work till that one little thing, right? I, I kind of think about it like a, when you have like sand through the hourglass. There's that one that makes it feel like it's going faster. Even if it's not, there's the illusion of that. That's all it was. And then all of a sudden, whew, he was there. That's magic. Well, he, <laughs> he, he did something. And I'll never forget Chris Jackson hearing that song for the first time. And Chris getting goosebumps and seeing Chris's arm as Lynn sang it to him. And I thought, okay, there it is.
2: You've said that um, you've recognized in each other to use each other's standard in your own pursuit. I think that's a really wonderful example of when that happens. The musical made its off-Broadway debut at the Public Theater in February 2015, where its engagement was sold out. Oscar Eustace... The public theater's artistic director has said that your work on Hamilton is one of the most extraordinary leadership jobs he's ever seen. And I love that he was thinking about it or, or describing it as a leadership job because it seems to have really underscored your philosophy about how you direct and the whole notion of humanity first.
1: Oscar Eustace, who runs the Public, is uh, is a producer and a director, and knows what it's like to be in the room. And I find that he then knows what to provide. So if you need to be in the room, you can go and do your job. So that's what you want from a producer, and that's what I had at the Public. I had a I had a chance to to just focus on my job, which was unifying and clarifying, making sure we knew where we were marching. And it was an it was an intense time. It was a really crazy uh, thing that was happening on there because. We had no show. I mean, we we had the show, but we'd never teched the show. And the first day of tech, when you're putting it together with your choreographer and your designers and, you know, the band is coming in and the costume designers work and everyone is starting to intersect and our set designer, David Corns. and then all of a sudden, it's not just this thing that's in your head. It's the thing that's in all of your heads. But your decision-making on a day like that is, it's like 500 decisions a day and you will be able to come back to some of them and others you will not. And you just need to keep marching ahead.
2: The show moved to Broadway in August 2015, again at the Richard Rodgers, where it became a cultural sensation. We barely need to even discuss it. That's how well known it is. But it received an incredible critical reception, an unprecedented advance box office. It garnered a record-setting 16 Tony nominations, 111, including one for you, Best Director, The music, the pop music and the rap music of the early '90s, music that first influenced you as you were growing up, is deeply, deeply embedded in Hamilton. And just some of the references include the Fugees and Mob D, Brand Nubian, Notorious B.I.G. and Christopher Wallace. And in fact, when Hamilton first introduces himself to the audience, I think he spells out his name in the same cadence that Wallace used in his song Going Back to Cali. Is that is that correct?
1: That is correct, yes. Oh,
2: good. Excellent. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you know, there's the way that uh, Paul Taswell, our extraordinary costume designer, designed the show. One of the things we talked about early on was from the neck up is now, and from the neck down is then. And the, the clothes move like now. But if you look at our show, there's no one who is wigged to look like the person before them. It is who they are. And that sort of expression when you come out at the top of the show and everybody's in their parchment look, with few exception, and then the color is added in during those first couple changes. And then the return is to the parchment, including, you know, with the king at the very end. That sort of emergence um, was something that we talked about a lot. And how you draw the the color out and then who's in the shadows and who's participating in the storytelling. Because our feeling is it's all of us all of the time because witnessing is also participating. So that was something that had a, a big impact on the levels. And then David Korens was a real advocate and had to convince me and Blankenbuehler about the, the turntable and the double turntable. Because we had done a workshop in 2014 without it, and it seemed to go pretty well. And we thought, all right, well, so we can do that. And I just said to David, pick 10 moments and tell me why we need to have it. And he sort of lit up and he came back in and sort of storyboarded the 10 moments, many of which are in the show. And I thought, okay, so let's let's see what we can do. And it gave us a chance to explore the inevitability of time because you think you're standing still and yet.
2: The notion of time in Hamilton is, for me, one of the most exquisite things about the play.
1: Well, it's, um, it's one of Lynn's gifts and one that we all tried to honor because we were thinking a lot about, you know, The Matrix was a big reference for us you know the bullet time of the matrix um and and i love that and so we We feel it well you knew you needed to stop time at the end and so when we came up with the idea for satisfied which is the number that basically rewinds and stops time that we've seen play in helpless that was giving us the equipment we needed later on to slow everything down and i think that was a moment when lynn wrote that song that felt a lot like the the power i'm not comparing the two things but in chorus line. at the ballet where it goes from you speak, you speak, you speak, and then the three of them come out. And I remember Sondheim reading something, he said, oh, it can be this. And I think that's where Lynn just takes everything and just kind of turns it upside down. Yeah.
2: And that's when you go, oh, okay.
1: Yeah. And there's no visual representation. We've never recorded I wasn't satisfied. Because I, we want that experience to stay in the field. And I
2: I I in my in my research, I'm like, I have to find this. I have to find this moment. And I couldn't. And now I'm so glad you're telling me that it's not there because I couldn't find it and I was doing all sorts of searching and listening and oh my God. Okay, good. Good to know. Um the last thing I want to ask you about, or the, the few last things I want to ask you about are your upcoming efforts. You have a play reopening at the Public Theater this fall, Tiny Beautiful Things, which is based on the book of Dear Sugar Advice Columns by Cheryl Strayed. Um, tell us a little bit more about how you got involved in this and why that particular topic. Do you
1: know that book? Yes. Yeah. Did, how did you get the book? Did someone give it to you? Yes. Yeah. Um, someone gave it to me, a guy named Marshall Heyman, who's a wonderful writer and Marshall always knows things six months before I should. So I was like, just tell me what to read. Um, It was the summer of 2013.
2: Nice choice.
1: Yeah. And he gave me that book and I, I had not read Wild at this point. So this is my first exposure to, to Cheryl's work. I started thinking about this one idea. Can you have a private moment in public? The experience of reading a book is often singular, unless it's a book club you don't read it straight through. You pick it up and you put it down. It, there's no unity of time necessarily. Most people don't read a book straight through, and this would be a very difficult book to read straight through. And I thought, what if I made something that didn't have a strict narrative structure, but it allowed these stories to be said out loud to a group of strangers sitting in the dark? I, th- I think I would wanna feel that. I think I would wanna hear that. So I've, uh, I said to Marshall, let's try to find Cheryl. So I wrote her this email, never heard back. I then um, was at dinner with a friend of mine, Nia Vardal, who's a wonderful writer and performer. And I said, will you just get this book and read it? And she's like, what do you want to do with it? And I said, I think it's a piece of theater. And she said, let's find Cheryl. She found Cheryl. And Cheryl said, you know, this sounds like a really amazing idea. I I wish you well, and I want to be supportive. But there's this theater director who wrote to me about six months ago, and he also said something like this. And so I just, I feel a little, and he said, no, no, it's, it's okay. I just talked to him. And that's how it started, um, you know, from a feeling, um, from a hunch. And then Nia and I started talking about the structure with Marshall and I brought it to Oscar Eustace at The Public. And Oscar is very interested in theater as ritual and the healing of that. And so we came up with a structure and Nia started writing and arranging and Cheryl was around and would come to rehearsal and she is as powerful and impressive and and, um, connected human being as I've ever met in my life. Uh, And I just, I loved being around her. And I thought, oh, we can put this in the world and then someone can do it, hopefully in the future, in Seattle and in Topeka and in Canada and in Europe. And they can make their own version of this. And so we did it last season at The Public and, uh, and, and it went pretty well. And so we're gonna have a chance to do it again at the Newman Theater at The Public.
2: Earlier this year, it was confirmed that a film adaptation of Hamilton is in the works. Will you be directing that?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, there is a film that, that we made of Hamilton that I shot last year with the original company that we produced and it was shot on the stage and captured two live performances. That is something that we did and we own and we are still in the process of working on. And at some point, we'll figure out when the best time to put it into the world. You know, Hamilton was designed to be seen in a theater. And by theater, I mean, you know, the authorial tent of uh, live actors. Um, you know, the the film version of, of, of Hamilton, a lot of people, uh, you know, and they, ultimately this is Lynn's decision, um, talked to Lynn about making that movie. And Lynn has said, this is a way down the line thing. I don't want to speak for him, but I do know that the fact that there are many, versions of Hamilton that are going to be in the world, you know, in the local theater that's traveling from here to here to here. It's how we want as many people to experience it as possible.
2: How different are you finding the shows to be culturally in different parts of the country or as the show now moves to London?
1: Well, London will be this fall, so I'll report back. Okay. <laughs> um, but what I found that was very moving when I went to Chicago and we made the show is Chicagoans came up to some of the people in the cast and sometimes I'd be around and they said, thank you for making this. It feels just like Chicago. And I thought, oh, right. We, we see what we want to see. We put ourselves in the place we need to be in. And I thought if we can do that for every city we go to, then we're doing our job.
2: Oh, I think you're doing it for every person that sees it.
1: Well, we're trying, if nothing else.
2: <laughs> Thomas Kail, thank you so much for enlivening American theater and for elevating the human spirit. Well, thank you so much.
1: I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for, for making time and for your deep Googling. <laughs>
2: <laughs> to find out more about Thomas Cale and what he's up to, just Google him or Betty yet score some tickets to Hamilton. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Manners and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Hellman and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemelman.com. If you like the podcast, please write a review on iTunes and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.